This is Space Time Series 25, Episode 45, for broadcast on the 15th of April, 2022. Coming up on Space Time, Russia confirms it will end cooperation on the International Space Station, Rocket Lab launches its 112th orbital satellite, and North Korea fakes its latest missile launch. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. The Russian Federal Space Agency Roscosmos is now briefing Moscow on its plans to terminate cooperation with Western partners on the International Space Station. Roscosmos chief Dmitry Rogozin says he's now developed a timeline for ending space station cooperation with the American, Canadian, European and Japanese space agencies. The problem is, no one's really sure exactly what that means. The move comes in the wake of ongoing sanctions against Russia over its invasion of Ukraine and growing evidence of war crimes by Russian troops. Rogozin, who was appointed Roscosmos chief by Vladimir Putin, says he supports the invasion of Ukraine. He says Russia and the West could only have space cooperation after all sanctions against Moscow are unconditionally lifted. But exactly how Rogozin intends to end cooperation aboard the ISS is still unclear, as it takes a joint effort, both in space and on the ground, to keep the orbiting outpost flying. There are currently seven crew on station, three Russian cosmonauts, three American astronauts, and one German-born European Space Agency astronaut. Having Russian crews leave the space station would simply see those roles taken over by the remaining crew members. Russian ground tracking and mission control functions can be taken over by the other Western partners, as could the additional supply runs to the space station currently undertaken by Progress cargo ships. Both SpaceX and Cygnus's operators have already offered to take up those runs. And a third company, Sierra Nevada, is already preparing to have their Dream Chaser space plane begin flights to the space station carrying cargo later this year. NASA's Administrator Bill Nelson says the American Space Agency will continue to cooperate with Russia to ensure continued safe operation of the International Space Station. Meanwhile, the European Space Agency's chief executive, Josef Aschenbacher, says he would forward Moscow's call for the lifting of sanctions on the Russian space industry to the European Space Agency's member states as these matters fall under their responsibility. In response, Rosgosnan lashed out at Aschenbacher, saying that while the 28 state member bureaucracies were dealing with the issue, the International Space Station would die its natural death. This is space time. Still to come... Rocket Lab launches its 112th orbital satellite, and it's been revealed that North Korea has faked its latest missile launch. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Rocket Lab has carried out another successful flight from its Mahia Peninsula launch complex on the New Zealand North Island East Coast. The Without Mission a Beat mission aboard an Electron rocket placed two more Black Sky Gen 2 Earth Observation satellites into a 430 kilometre high orbit. 
The flight was Electron's 25th launch and brings to 112 the number of satellites now deployed by the rocket. Without mission to beat, we'll launch on a southeastern trajectory from Launch Complex 1 on the Mahia Peninsula. With this mission today, there will be a total of three deployments. You might recognise this sequence from our two previous back-to-back missions, Love at First Insight and A Data with Destiny, both of which used a modified kickstage to fit the two Black Sky satellites within Electron's fairing. The Black Sky satellite that sits on top of the top hat structure will deploy first, followed by the structure itself, and then the second Black Sky satellite will be released. This process will only take a couple of minutes to complete and will begin at around the T plus 53 minute mark. Today's launch will deploy the fifth and sixth satellites that we've carried to space for Black Sky in the past five months. These satellites will join Black Sky's current constellation of 13 small sats, eventually expanding to over 60, which are used to provide on-demand, real-time Earth observation data and satellite imagery. We're now coming up on the final go, no-go poll by our launch director to determine whether to proceed with the final minutes in the countdown. Down. In this poll, each of our operators will check in from their stations to confirm their relevant electron systems are operating as they should. All operators, this is the LD on mission, proceeding with the go no go sequence stage. Stage is go. Avionics. Avionics is go. GNC. GNC is go. VMS. VMS is go. T1. T1 is go. GC. GC is go. PLS. PLS is go. RSO. RSO is go. MET. It is go. And I have a go from MM. LD sub. LD sub go. That concludes the go no go sequence. For those who might have missed our launch last month, we lifted off from pad B here at Launch Complex 1 for the very first time. This is our third pad globally, allowing us to launch and then launch again without the hindrance of pad maintenance or recycle time. Pad B joins pad A, which we're launching from today, at LC1 in Mahia, the world's first private orbital launch site on the east coast of New Zealand. At Launch Complex 1, we're capable of supporting up to 120 launch opportunities every year. GC, LD on mission. LD, GC. Please proceed with sequence 58 launch pad ready. Sequence 58 in work. As we head into Strongback Retract, let's take a closer look at Electron on the pad. Electron is our 18 metre tall, well, 18 and a bit today two-stage launch vehicle made with carbon composite material, making it incredibly lightweight but also strong enough to withstand the forces of launch. The liquid oxygen and kerosene propellant mix is used to power the nine 3D-printed Rutherford engines on Stage 1. These engines are named after Sir Ernest Rutherford, the famous physicist and New Zealander who discovered the radioactive element radon as well as the concept of radioactive half-life. Those nine Rutherford engines power the first stage until Electron is at an altitude of around 70 kilometres above sea level. At this point, the next stage of the journey is carried by just one Rutherford engine, specially designed to work in the vacuum of space. We also have another engine, named after another famous physicist, Marie Curie. Our Curie engine is the 11th engine on Electron and is housed within Electron's third stage, also known as the kick stage. This kick stage is important for delivering the payload to its exact destination in space. Today, after Electron lifts off the pad and successfully completes Stage 1 and Stage 2 burn to get us into space, Curie will then kick in to propel Black Sky's two satellites to a 430-kilometre circular orbit. The kick stage is a small but mighty upper stage responsible for our incredibly accurate payload insertion, on average within just one kilometre of the target orbit. Electron remains in good health and the Black Sky satellites inside the fairing are good to go. The weather remains green and the path to orbit is looking clear from Launch Complex 1 at T0. All stations, uh, this is the LD on mission. From now on, there shall be no red flags on your critical LCCs. VMS, LD on mission. Go ahead. Confirm flight computer as goes are green. Confirm as goes are green. VMS, uh, lock auto sequence and confirm. Auto sequence is locked. All stations, LD on mission. We are go for auto sequence start at T minus two minutes. 
LD is go for launch. LD shadow. LD shadow go. Vehicle is on internal power. Box load complete. Skate in research. AFTS is green and enabled for flight. Anti-gathering disabled. Stage one and stage two are pressed for flight. High flow engine purge enabled. Water deluge is activated. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. We have liftoff. battery discharge is normal. And there we have it. Our 25th electron launch vehicle is off the pad for this mission and progressing well on its way to low Earth orbit. Soon the vehicle will approach the point in its journey when it experiences the most amount of stress, maximum aerodynamic pressure, which is known as Max-Q. We have word from Mission Control that we can confirm that Electron has successfully passed through Max-Q and is continuing on its southeastern trajectory off the coast of New Zealand. The first stage's Rutherford engines are firing perfectly as we come up to the next major milestone ahead of the first separation event for Electron. AOS Chatham Station. We're approaching main engine cutoff, or MECO. This is when Electron throttles down just a bit before shutting off those nine Rutherford engines on stage one we mentioned earlier. This reduction in thrust allows for a clean separation of the first and second stages before the singular Rutherford engine on the second stage fires up and takes the satellites the rest of the way into orbit. Miko confirmed. Stage separation confirmed. Stage two ignition. There we go. We have confirmed a successful transition from the first to second stages of Electron's flight with Miko, stage separation and second stage ignition all nominal. The shell at the top of Electron, known as the payload fairing, protects the satellites as the vehicle launches through Earth's atmosphere. Since we've now cleared the lower, lower atmosphere, those satellites don't need that protection anymore. In fact, we need to jettison that protective Very shell so we can safely deploy the satellites to low Earth orbit. Holding nominal. There goes the payload fairing. Black Sky's satellites are now expo God, exposed to space, no longer needing this shell to protect them, as Electron has already punched through Earth's atmosphere to take them to their orbital destination. We've got a short time gap now between this latest event and the next one coming up for Electron's second stage, which involves swapping out the batteries that power the second stage Rutherford engine. The mission is continuing nominally as we approach that next milestone, with the second stage travelling at nearly 9,000 kilometres an hour at an altitude of 139 kilometres. The mission brings Black Sky's real-time geospatial intelligence gathering satellite constellation to 14. The satellites have one of the highest hourly revisit rates in the world, combined with the Spectre A1 platform's artificial intelligence to provide monitoring and automated detection of fast-changing information. The launch took place just weeks after Rocket Lab commissioned its second launch pad at the Mahaya Peninsula Launch Complex. The company's also recently announced plans to construct a new larger second-generation rocket called Neutron, which will be built at a new Rocket Lab factory at the Wallops Island Flight Facilities Complex on the Virginia Mid-Atlantic Coast, which is also home to Rocket Lab's new US launch pad. Having a launch pad in the United States and now two in New Zealand gives Rocket Lab incredible flexibility. Peter Beck is the company's CEO. What we're doing here with Pad B is essentially doubling our launch capacity. The ability to launch and our launch cadence is essentially doubled by having an additional pad. Launch Complex 1 is like no other launch site in the world. Uh, we literally started on a greenfield here in Mahia Peninsula, built one little pad and a small integration facility and now we have two pads, a number of clean rooms, making a world-class launch facility. 
We created a launch complex that was capable of launching once every 72 hours to a range of inclinations, right from mid-inclination, about 30 degrees, all the way to sun-synchronous orbit, all from Launch Complex 1. For us, it's really important to have launch pads in both hemispheres of the planet. So we have two launch pads in the southern hemisphere, one launch pad in the northern hemisphere. For our government customers, it's really great to be able to have that flexibility and that access where they don't have to leave US soil to launch out of LC2. Um, and for our commercial customers and as some of our government customers, they have the flexibility to choose which pad they want to go out and which, which pad suits their schedule the best. Right now, we've got one customer uh, that's ready to go on, on this pad and another customer that's processing and getting ready to go on that pad. So with Pad B, we took a lot of the design from our original Pad A and made some small improvements to make our operation that much more efficient. We use the same integration facility, the same rocket runway, um, with our final infrastructure all placed in a concrete pad no more bigger than a tennis court. LC-1 really is the latest state-of-the-art launch facility. We had this real luxury from day one saying, okay, blank sheet, how are we gonna build a launch pad to really be the 21st century launch pad? So launch range is much more than just a couple of pads. Out at LC-1 here, you see multiple clean rooms that enable us to process multiple customers at one time. Up the top of the road there, we have range control where we are in charge of the entire range. We don't rely on any government range, any government assets, AFTS systems, tracking dishes, everything. It's all owned and controlled by Rocket Lab. Having Pad B really means we can eliminate pad recycle time, which enables us to just do launch after launch and just pace them one after the other. With two launch pads, we have doubled our capacity and reached ultimate launch flexibility. This means when a customer needs us, we've got a pad ready. From LC1, we've flown over 100 satellites to date, all supporting everything from climate science through to international logistics, maritime surveillance, and soon we look forward to launching to the moon and beyond. This is space time. Still to come, news that North Korea's faked its latest missile launch, and later in the science report, news of another mass bleaching event on the Great Barrier Reef. All that and more still to come on space time. It's been revealed that North Korea faked what Pyongyang described as a successful launch of its new most powerful long-range ballistic missile, the Hwasong-17. The launch was the latest in a series of 12 ballistic missile tests undertaken by Pyongyang since the Biden administration took over in Washington last year. North Korea's official Korean Central News Agency claimed the March 24th launch of the Hwasong-17 was designed to test components of a new reconnaissance satellite at operational altitudes. North Korea reported the Hwasong-17 flew some 1,090 kilometres, reaching a maximum altitude of 6,248.5 kilometres and hitting its target in the Sea of Japan. What they were actually trying to do was test the second stage performance of the Hwasong-17. The problem is the March 24 flight was a spectacular failure, with the missile exploding in mid-air in the skies above Pyongyang, where the whole city saw it. The flight was meant to be the centrepiece of celebrations ahead of the April 15th anniversary of the birth of North Korea's founding father, dear leader Kim Il-sung. But the missile's dramatic failure was seen by so many people, Pyongyang needed to do something to shore up citizen loyalty. So they faked it. 
In the great traditions of the movie Don't Look Up, Pyongyang released a special Top Gun-style promotional video full of dramatic music and lots of quick cuts and takeouts, showing North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, complete with leather jacket and knockoff aviator sunglasses, inspecting the missile, doing a dramatic slow-mo walk as the missile hangar doors slowly opened, flanked by his top brass and lots of troops in combat fatigues, then personally supervising the launch, stopwatches at the ready, and a countdown complete with lots of reverb at blast-off. As the newsreader explains how the new Hwasong-17 missile will make the world tremble and shake in awe at North Korea's nuclear prowess. There were lots of congratulatory handshakes starring King Jong-ung, of course. Lots of pats on the back. Again, that's King Jong-ung in the centre. And, of course, the obligatory group photos with the men. Again, that's Kim Jong-un in the middle. Because of the rocket's failure, what you're actually seeing in a lot of the footage is the less advanced Hwasong-15, which North Korea had already tested five years earlier in 2017. The new Hwasong-17 wasn't displayed until a military parade in October 2020. We reported on it at the time. It was transported on what was then a giant new 11-axle transporter erector launcher vehicle. The Wasong 17's undergone three tests so far. The first was on February the 26th, the second on March the 4th, and the third, the ill-fated March 24th failure. So they simply cut and spliced all the vision from the earlier tests, and voila, the March 24th crash and burn never happened. Meanwhile, in the wake of the recent spate of North Korean tests, South Korea's Agency for Defence Development has successfully tested its first solid-fuel two-stage rocket. The rocket was launched from the Taiyin test site, 150 kilometres southwest of Seoul, successfully sending a test payload into space. The test was designed to verify the rocket's performance, including fairing separation and upper-stage attitude control features. Once operational, the new launcher will be used to deliver small surveillance and reconnaissance satellites into low-Earth orbit. Under a 1979 arms agreement with the United States, Seoul was prohibited from developing solid-fueled rockets over concerns of sparking a regional arms race. But none of that stopped North Korea. So a new agreement was arranged in 2020 allowing the use of solid-fuel rockets for space launches. And as North Korea continued accelerating its activities... All remaining restrictions on South Korean missile development were lifted last May. Though they lack throttle control, solid-fuel rockets are less expensive to develop and manufacture than their liquid-fuel counterparts. And, of course, they can be launched far more quickly. The Agency for Defence Development and the Korean Aerospace Research Institute are also working on a new rocket combining both liquid and solid-fueled engines. This is Space Time.
And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. The Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority has confirmed another mass bleaching event on the reef, the sixth of its kind and the fourth since 2016. Scientists say the coral bleaching was observed at multiple reefs in all four management areas, the far northern, Cairns Cooktown, Townsville with Sunday and Mackay Capricorn. The findings confirm that mass bleaching events are occurring despite cooler La Nina conditions. The authority says weather patterns over the next few weeks remain critical in determining the overall extent and severity of coral bleaching across the entire marine park. Dr Zoe Richards, leader of the Coral Conservation Research Group at Curtin University, says this latest bleaching verifies that both the frequency and intensity of these events are dramatically increasing. Instead of once every 10 years, mass bleaching events are now occurring every two years. And the increase in frequency decreases the ability of the coral community to bounce back, making coral die-off far more likely. She says the most concerning part of this year's bleaching event is that it's occurring during a La Nina event. La Nina traditionally bringing rain and cooler temperatures to the Great Barrier Reef. A new study has found that air pollution is now shortening the lives of people by nearly three years on average, which puts it ahead of war, malaria, HIV, AIDS and smoking as the leading cause of shortened lifespans. The findings, reported in the journal Cardiovascular Research, looked at the effects of air pollution on six types of disease, including lung cancer, heart disease and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. The authors found that cardiovascular diseases were responsible for more than 40% of the loss of life expectancy linked to air pollution. And they estimate that removing fossil fuel emissions could increase average life expectancy by just over a year. A new clinical trial has found that daily consumption of cranberries for one month improved cardiovascular function in healthy men. The study, reported in the journal Food and Function, included 45 healthy males who either consumed 9 grams of cranberry powder, that's the equivalent of 100 grams of fresh cranberries per day, or a placebo for a period of one month. Those consuming cranberries showed a significant improvement in flow-mediated dilation, which signals improvement in heart and blood vessel function and is considered a sensitive biomarker of cardiovascular disease risk by measuring how blood vessels widen when blood flow increases. The authors say the increases in polyphenols and metabolites in the bloodstream and the related improvements in flow-mediated dilation after cranberry consumption emphasize the important role cranberries may play in cardiovascular disease prevention. However, it's worth pointing out that while the study was peer-reviewed, it was nevertheless supported by the Cranberry Institute. It's been revealed that the Indian government is behind a growing push to encourage the use of traditional Indian medicines on a more global scale. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says the controversial move comes despite there being very little scientific evidence showing they work. Yeah, the Indian uh, Ministry of, and uh, wait for this, Ayurveda, Yoga, Naturopathy, Irinani, Siddha, Sawa Rigpa and Homeopathy is pushing traditional Indian 
medicine, which is often Ayurveda or Ayurvedic medicine, not just around through India, etc., but it's also trying to push it into other countries. This is similar to what's happening with the Chinese government, is pushing traditional Chinese medicine, and it's definitely promoting it for other countries, etc., to try and increase the following for it. Now, this might be on commercial basis or it might be on altruistic basis, but the trouble is with both of them, there's a lot of areas which are very dodgy. Ayurveda itself is this sort of very similar to traditional Chinese medicine. It's herbal, all sorts of treatments, involves uh, a lot of other areas such as yoga and some areas of yoga are more spiritual than actual exercise. Naturopathy has got a lot of uh, junk in there, a lot of the basis for it about the energies, etc., the, the spirit that's within us all. And of course, homeopathy on the end of that is just pure junk, basically. So there's a lot of stuff there that's been officially pushed out by the Indian ministry of this. So the Indian government is actually promoting this, including to have universities set up to actually teach this stuff. A lot of the true scientific community within India is objecting to it, and that receives a lot of pushback from the government and, of course, from the practitioners who make a living out of it. So it is an interesting idea that the Indian government is pushing this out. I dare say it would have a lot of support from the practitioners of these things. They would see it as a growing market. Certainly that is the case with the traditional Chinese medicine, and that's equally has a lot of uh, very strange things in it. It is being officially, formally pushed out into other countries. When Indian and Chinese governments do that sort of thing, is that a sign of entrenched corruption within that government? Um, I, I take the use of the word corruption. It's certainly that a lot of people who probably believe it, right, within those areas, but they do see a commercial benefit from it. In China, there's a lot of double standards about actually what is being pushed out to the ordinary person and what's being used by the official areas. I mean, it was suggested that traditional Chinese medicine had a big push in China because there just wasn't the facilities to do Western medicine. So they had to find an alternative. And they drew on this thing with supposedly long-standing antecedents. But I mean, I don't know if you call that corruption or just sort of a commercial business sense of something they may believe anyway. And certainly a lot of others in India don't. The Ayurveda especially being formally being pushed out to the, into African countries, whereas traditional Chinese medicine is more being pushed out to other Asian countries and places like Australia. I guess what I was getting at there was if you've got something which you know doesn't work and we know homeopathy doesn't work and you're still pushing that at a government level, that's got to do more than just test your credibility. The one thing you learn as a sceptic is that don't underestimate the ability of people in official positions to believe garbage. There's so every bureaucrats and politicians. It's not, just, it's not just bureaucrats. You find academics and things always supporting these things. You can always find an academic somewhere to support the craziest theory. And then, of course, it shows it has scientific evidence for what? it. You mean like geologists claiming climate change isn't real? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, people stepping outside of their areas often. Hello, Ian, if but... you're listening... <laughs> I mean, we run stories about, you know, the, the syndrome is called Nobel rot, which is when people, scientists who win Nobel Prizes for a particular excellent bit of work in their past suddenly go into other areas and they figure that because they won a Nobel Prize, they're always right. And yet they're supporting some very, very strange things. And you look in our magazine and we get examples of this uh, covering some of the most famous scientists who might be going into other areas. Same thing probably happened with Ayurveda, same thing happened with traditional Chinese medicine, but certainly there is the more cynical side of it as well, that they're pushing a business that is a big business. In, in India, actually, they get very nasty if you start criticizing. Is that right? It, it, Is that right? Oh, you know, yeah. You get, it gets, it gets um, definitely a bit, a bit of, uh, uh, you know, you get threatened, certainly, by the, by the industry. As well, you probably get... Is there a strong religious undertone to all this? In yeah, there like would be. I mean, there, there, there is in yoga for a start, right. right? I mean, it's a lot of spiritualism in there rather than just, you know, it's a good way of exercising and meditating, but there's a lot a lot more to it. They're the same for naturopathy. There's basically a big spiritual side to that, underpinnings and, you know, I don't know, if, I don't know actually, 
I don't think traditional Chinese medicine has so much waving of wands over things, and uh, it's it's just garbage treatment. (laughs) That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. That's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcast, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 